Welcome to this episode of Finding the Future, where we interview thought leaders and innovators in land use and sustainability. I'm Bill Griffith. In cities across the country, the pandemic has brought home the plight of the homeless. Rising home prices, job losses, and economic disparity have left more and more people without good housing options. Cities struggle to find alternatives to the tent cities that have sprung up on public parks and along highways. One solution is gaining national attention, the construction of tiny house villages. A housing nonprofit based in Seattle has had great success pioneering the concept and now manages tiny house villages in Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, and King County. The organization is known as Lehigh, which stands for the Low Income Housing Institute. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Josh Castle, who is the Community Engagement Director for Lehigh. It's his job to run the gauntlet of community and church organizations building support for the construction of the tiny house villages. He also seeks out volunteers. Josh talked about how he got started with Lehigh. I was involved previously with a number of political campaigns and organized volunteers for all kinds of campaign efforts, canvassing, phone banks, other things, before I joined Lehigh. So I was actually hired as a volunteer program coordinator. That was my first role five and a half years ago. Got promoted to volunteer programs manager. Actually, my full title is advocacy and community engagement director. And I've been in that position for, I want to say, two years now. So our program has expanded pretty dramatically in the last several years. And we've been working with a lot of communities and basically presenting in front of you know, city councils, in front of neighborhood groups, so a lot, of, a lot of my work started moving more away from volunteer programs and more towards just community engagement and hosting these community meetings and then forming these community advisory committees that exist for all of the, all of the tiny house villages that are made up of neighbors, businesses, faith organizations, community groups that are all close by a village. And basically that's about the ongoing community engagement. So they meet regularly and talk about, they oversee the village basically and uh, provide advisory input and they might talk about a concern in the neighborhood. They ask what did the residents need, they hear about the outcomes for the month. So my work started moving much more towards that element. So tell me about how the concept started. And there's eight of them now, eight villages? There's actually 14. So there's Mm -hmm. eight in Seattle alone. And then we have two villages in the city of Olympia, two tiny house villages, three in Tacoma, And then the one that most recently opened a couple months ago is in Skyway, which is unincorporated King County, just outside of Seattle, south of Seattle. Near the airport. Yeah, near the airport. And that's actually the first village in King County outside Seattle and and also the first one that King County has funded. So you kind of broke that that, uh, mold. We got our foot foot in the door. Good. And tell me a little bit, maybe as you describe this arrangement with the, the villages, about the institution itself, Lehigh? Well, Lehigh's been around about 30 years now. We celebrated a 30th year anniversary recently. And Lehigh is an affordable housing provider. So we own, manage, and operate 2,400 units of housing in six counties, mostly King County, but other five other counties as well. So basically this is permanent housing, permanent affordable housing, and some of it is transitional housing. And then starting in the year 2000, we opened our first urban rest stop in downtown Seattle, which provides laundry, showers, and bathrooms for people experiencing homelessness. And then we opened uh, two other urban rest stops in the the years following. 
And then five and a half years ago, we started partnering with the city of Seattle on tiny house villages. There was a huge, still is, and much worse, homelessness epidemic in the Puget Sound region and in Seattle. And there were just encampments popping up all over the city. And basically the city of Seattle was trying to find a solution, like what to do about this, because there's just a huge lack of affordable housing and a huge increase in homelessness. So they started authorizing these encampments and allowing them to be in place and, you know, and not be swept. Mm-hmm. As long as they had kind of an organized structure in place, as long as they had some management, as long as they had a fiscal sponsor, and that was Lehigh. The Low Income Housing Institute stepped in to be a um, fiscal sponsor working with, working with other organizations. Then what happened is we started, we realized that you could actually, if, if you build a structure, 120 square feet or less, that is the international building code limit. Once you go above that, you have to get a building permit. It's considered a dwelling unit. But if you stay below that, then it makes it much quicker and easier to build the structure. So we started building tiny houses that were 120 square feet or less. Um, and these are actually 96 square feet on the inside, but if you count the eaves, it gets right up to that limit. So we started, we realized, well, you could actually build these because it's far more expensive and far more time consuming to build them if you have to get a building permit and all of that. So, um, so that's when we realized, oh, you can, we can actually just build these without having to go through any of that. So we started doing that. It's also very cost effective. It's about 2,500 to build a tiny house, although that was the recent figure. That was how it started. And now over the last several months, um, lumber costs have gone significantly up. It basically got up to about 5,000. And now we think it's kind of leveled off, and we understand it's going back down again. So it's now down. I'm going to guess it's down about 4,500 now, but it might be it might be even less. So we're hoping it goes back down again. But basically, the program is very cost effective, and it works. The program works to get to people. So the idea is of a tiny house village is it serves as a, as a stepping stone from homelessness to, to permanent housing. And the bridge that gets it there is case management. So the case managers are in every village. They work on site with all the residents and they help residents obtain permanent housing, employment, healthcare, education, getting IDs and documentation together. A lot of people come into a village after having their encampment you know, swept or they were stolen from or they just simply lost their ID and their, their documentation. So they come in without proving who they are at, at all. There's, there's no way to prove who they are. And so you can imagine it's complicated to try to get an ID if you don't have any way to prove who you are. So the case managers work with each resident to get their ID and documentation together and then so they can become housing ready and they can access housing and and employment. You can't apply for any of those things without an ID. So so they work with each resident on that. And then a lot of people come in that just need a place to recover. They're just dealing with PTSD and trauma and being out in the cold. So the first step is just being in a place where they can reclaim their dignity, they can get a sense of safety and security, they can turn on the heat, secure their possessions because you can lock the door, and then once they kind of get to that point where they're assured that they're safe and, you know, they're getting their uh, their dignity back, they then work with case management to get into housing. And, like, that's the next step is they start working on that process. And so, without naming names, maybe just give me a recent story of somebody who kind of went through those milestones. There's a woman who was homeless. She was living outside with her daughter, and they ended up connecting with the church. And the church, I'm trying not to, I'm not going to list any identified information, of course, but the reverend of the church and her daughter and her all worked together. 
and he recommended that they go visit a tiny house village and go see what it's all about. And he was able to actually refer her and her daughter into the village because it's, it's a church-sponsored site, and this is one of the churches that sponsors it. So they came into the tiny house village. They saw that this is a place I want to be. I mean, it was basically it was first sense of hope that they felt in years. So they came into the village, and then she basically became just a natural leader and an organizer inside the village and helped with keeping everything, like working with the staff and working with volunteers. She was part of the success of the village, basically, and making it as uh, well-run of a place as it is. And then she and her daughter, working with case management in the village, they ended up transitioning into permanent housing, working with Lehigh Case Management. And now they're doing just great. So in terms of the land and then the case management, is that provided directly by Lehigh or do you work with county services? Yeah. Lehigh employs the case managers. Okay. Although in two villages, Lake Union Village and Whittier Heights Village, which are two harm reduction model villages, Lifelong, an organization that we work with, um, provides the case management. And they have a behavioral health specialist. So there's a lot of folks that are in those villages that have mental health challenges or have substance use disorder. So they work with, uh, they come with that behavioral health expertise. But Lehigh case managers, uh, very talented folks, are, you know, operating in all the other tiny house villages. And in, in the transition to more permanent housing or permanent housing, um, wh what's the key? Is it kind of a readiness thing or just the availability of the permanent housing? Or Well, the number one issue that we're dealing with here is lack of affordable housing. That's, that's the number one reason why so much homelessness exists. So the case managers work with each resident as an individual, and they work with them on a plan for getting into housing, which for some people is going to take longer than others. So what happens is when somebody comes into a village directly from homelessness, sometimes chronic homelessness, the case manager sits down with them and they just start identifying like what, you know, what are the barriers, what are the challenges, and they work to eliminate all of those barriers to getting into housing. And some of that is like lack of income. So let's work on like applying for government benefits, applying for work. Some of it could be just like I mentioned earlier, lack of any documentation or ID. So let's get your documentation together. Some of it is, is just the being outside and being constantly at risk of violence, constantly in cold, rainy weather, you know, and not even being in a psychological place to even take that first step, to, you know, even to get into housing. So they work with those residents to help them get their mental health challenges addressed. And some people have physical disabilities. They work with, you know, residents on all those type of things. And then, yeah, and then they, some people have substance use disorders, so let's get you into treatment programs. Let's work on a recovery plan, you know, to get you out of using, you know, out of addictive behavior. And then they work methodically on all the steps that it takes to get them into housing. And some people, they'll get in and out within a month or two. You know, they just need a little leg up. Other people will take, you know, have been in a village for a really long time because they just have a particular set of challenges that are a little bit harder to overcome. So no, there's no limit to how long somebody can stay in the village. But we do want to get people in and out of a village as quickly as possible because that way we can address more people. You know, we can provide shelter for more people who need it. So once a tiny house opens up, you can move someone else in and you can help them on their journey from getting from homelessness to housing. And are there some people you just have to turn away because they're not eligible, uh, they don't have meet some criteria, or do you just try and house everybody who comes to your door? Well, it's a housing-first approach in the okay. villages. So we address every challenge that a person has. We work with them on it. 
somebody does have to agree to abide by the code of conduct. That is crucial. So when somebody's referred to a village, the special projects manager who manages the site will sit down with them and they'll go over the code of conduct and make sure that they fully understand it. You know, they read it together and then they have to agree to it and sign it. So as long as they can abide by the, that code of conduct, they can be served by this program. Okay, well, so that's a, it's a pretty low bar then. So the idea is to get people housed and, and not to create obstacles to housing. And I, I will say as well that we have a village that serves all women, uh, Whittier Heights Village. We have villages that serve families, you know, even like families with children. We have several villages that accommodate that. Some villages, because they're more of a harm reduction model village, there's no kids or minors you know, allowed in those sites. And then we have several villages that specifically serve African-American, Native American, and Alaska Native people experiencing homelessness. And they're referred by organizations that serve those communities. So there's a whole referral structure of five, six organizations uh, that serve BIPOC communities that provide those referrals. So it's fair to say that uh, having eight villages in several communities gives you that flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. Because the first time, first village, you probably didn't have that luxury, right? Uh, yeah, and a couple of these villages are, are actually have a, a self-management element as well. So the residents provide the security support. They each do like security shifts or they do chores in the kitchen. And then for all the villages, there's a chore structure built in place. So in the code of conduct, residents are required to do chores. Some people, that's going to be a challenge. Some people, it's just getting up in the morning is the first step, you know. That's something we want all residents to do, but we know ideally that's, that's not going to be possible for some people. But we want to make sure that everybody knows they have a stake in this. We want them to all work with us to make the village successful. So as a land use lawyer, one of the biggest challenges I've encountered over my career is the NIMBY mentality, mm -hmm. <laughs> not in my backyard. And you know, there's various strategies, obviously, for dealing with that, but I would think that's, given your role, that's pretty central to what you do in terms of advocacy and outrage. Tell me kind of what your strategy is when you're encountering resistance. Well, when we first started the Tiny House Village program, there was significant resistance. We had these community meetings. These were at one point in person before the pandemic, and people were very vocal, and some of these were dramatic meetings. But then over time, people realized that, well, first of all, this is a transitional, it's an interim solution to homelessness, and it's a cost-effective solution. And also, people are not there to stay. I mean, they're there to work with case management to get into housing. So that's what we would tell people, this is what the program is about. When people saw the empirical evidence that it was actually working, it's the most successful shelter program at getting people into permanent housing. It's often around 50% of people that exit a village, exit into permanent housing. This is double the rate of other forms of enhanced shelter. And the rate I last heard for basic shelter was about 4%. So it's the highest rate of exit to permanent housing. So when people see that, they see that that's what a village is able to do. Even the so-called NIMBYs, when they testify, they might testify to city council and they say, hey, I'm really concerned about all these tents in the park that's you know, right next to where I live. Could you please work hard to get more tiny house villages going? So people are now adding that to their message because they realize that program works. And people want to see tiny, you know, the tiny houses just aesthetically, they're painted, their volunteers and neighbors come together and paint them. They're very well built. A lot of times they include a porch. There's a lot of times there's like a nice fence around it, like a cedar fence. And it actually increases the look of a neighborhood. It becomes an asset to the community. So they, it makes the community look better. And it also helps those who are experiencing homelessness. And those who live in the village and the staff and the residents 
They understand the importance of having community support and they give back to the community. Following the interview, Josh took me on a tour of True Hope Village, which is located just a short drive from the Lehigh offices. Walking up to the village, I was struck by how clean the area outside the gate was and how the site was basically invisible to the community because a wooden fence screened all but the tops of the tiny houses. It could be a construction site, Christmas tree lot, or some other temporary location because it was well-screened and well-managed. Once inside the gate, I was greeted by Shelby. She's the special projects manager for the village. She was sitting at the security desk and was happy to show me around the tiny house village, where 35 homes are brightly painted, some with words of encouragement, others with bright characters, and still others with painted flowers. So how did this all come to be? Well, first of all, a group of local volunteers came together for a construction party at Century Link Field. They built 35 homes in one day. The houses were then dropped off at True Hope Village, where another crew of painters and artists came to the village to finish off the job. The results at this village were truly spectacular. They created an attractive space for the families who reside there. True Hope Village is one of the few villages that's actually designed for families. Next to the security office is a large tent that serves as a food hall and community gathering space. Right now, because of COVID, people have to keep a distance. But at other times, residents can make their food, warm it up there, and take it back to their homes if they like, or eat with others in the tent. It also serves as a place for people to meet and gather and share stories and success of their transition to permanent housing. I also dropped by the office of Beverly, a case management worker. It's her job to connect residents with an array of social services, to move residents from crisis to life in the village, and finally to permanent housing. As Josh noted earlier in the interview, this means working on those areas that are most critical to stability. Sometimes that's filling out applications for identification forms, for employment, getting people connected with addiction services, health care, and even food security. Beverly works between two villages and uses a form, she showed it to me, a client intake assessment form, to help people key into what they most need to get on this path to permanent housing. Josh explained that the village is rarely empty. In fact, all of them fill up within 24 to 48 hours of opening. Referrals are made through the city's outreach services to various service providers and nonprofits, and ultimately openings are filled at the tiny house villages. It is clear that this form of homeless housing is in great demand. As we left the village, it was a bright, sunny day, which is not always the case in Seattle. I stood there and I promised Josh that I would share the success of Lehigh in rolling out tiny house villages. Of course, the path to success elsewhere depends on the willingness of local officials and organizations to address public concerns and try something new. The Seattle experience shows a marked shift from managing tent cities and emergency food programs to creating a solid path to housing stability. It's a model that's based on strong case management and a commitment to addressing the individual causes of homelessness on a person-by-person basis. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Future. If you have a story about innovation in land use and sustainability, I'm ready to listen. I'm Bill Griffith.